HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here this week, it's so fitting that it's kind of this sultry summer day uh, with two Mainers bringing us some lobster clam shacks, that fresh coastal air breezing in. Ben Conniff and Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster um, and produce this wonderful cookbook, Real Maine Food, which we'll be talking about in a bit. But I want to know, how Mainer are you? Well, well, I'm born and raised. Uh, I grew up in a small town just outside of Portland named Cape Elizabeth. So, um, it's, uh, went to school outside of Maine. Now I live back in Maine, so Maine is home for me. Yeah, is Maine actually New England, or is it its own kind of, is there a secession happening? Is Maine its own thing? Well, I hope they consider us part of New England. I'm not sure if you ask, my, my answer is that I think we're part of New England. Yeah. If you ask them from Connecticut, I don't know if they'll... You know, if, if consider as part of New England here. I guess the deeper question is, are you a Red Sox fan? I'm a huge Red Sox fan. Okay, so then you are of the New England nation. Yeah. And Ben, are you a New Englander? Um, that's, it's actually really funny. So I'm I'm from away. I'm from Connecticut. Um, so I consider myself a New Englander, although I'm not uh, originally a Mainer. Um, my family and I would go up to Maine for a week every summer. Um, and that's how I came to love it. But I'm from... Eastern coastal Connecticut, uh, old Lyme, home of Lyme disease. Yeah. Uh, but I was actually, I was in Portland, Maine last week and I went to a new craft beer shop down there and, uh, they had all their beers organized by region. Um, and there was a Maine region and there was a New England region. (laughs) 
and then there was just a general northeast region, and Connecticut was not in the New England region. Apparently in Maine, they don't consider Connecticut part of New England. Well, I think it's because it's a swing state for Yankees Red Sox, and that, that's the real heart of that matter. Well, you, you've <laughs> got that going on right here. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's a Yankees fan. I just don't understand how you guys can work together. It can be tough sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, Maine itself, let, let's paint a picture, because it is euphemistically uh, called vacation land. Why is that? Because it's on our license plate. <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, the winters. The winters can be tough, and and I think that makes people uh, like. For me, I love Maine in part because we've got four true seasons. They're they're dramatically different seasons, but those hard winters, uh, rainy springs, uh, just make you really really appreciate that summer. And I think because of that, Maine people are super enthusiastic outgoing and happy in the summer months and it, 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 outside of uh outside of our people we've got a lot of great attractions that bring bring vacationers up to maine during those summer months and when you think of vacation you think of trying to find that place to eat your favorite lobster roll i know people in wiscasset are going to hate me saying that i do enjoy reds Red Eats creates like the longest clusterfuck of traffic on what is that Route One? Like Route one. it, it is absurd, and it's just because of that little crosswalk and where I know that engineers have been trying to create another bridge to divert traffic because of that delicious lobster roll, where they could just do one of those pedestrian bridges that are kind of like the St. Louis Arc right over the street, all will be saved. Yeah, or they could have the the line just wrap around on the street perpendicular to Route 1, but oh. that then you wouldldn't see the line. No, so. that would be too easy. Yeah. Well, it's it's the rubbernecking too. It's I mean the reason for the traffic is that everybody just wants to look out and and even just get a glimpse of reds in the line, maybe hang out their window and take a picture and uh, so I don't I, I mean I've heard I've heard people from Wiscasset saying they should move reds somewhere just far off of Route 1, but that's that's not going to happen. So, part of this book, part of this adventure, I feel like is you getting away from your business a little bit because Luke's lobster is is phenomenal and a phenomenon. Could you guys have ever believed that you would have multiple locations in New York, Boston, Chicago, so much more? So, so in the essence of uh, uh, saying, I mean, did when Ben and I started this five and a half years ago i mean we built it so that it was simple and and in in that simplicity it was fairly replicatable but neither of us had the intentions of having you know 17 of these shacks five and a half years later yeah i mean i think we both knew going into it the the number of of restaurants or the, the percentage of restaurants that fail in the first year and um you know, no matter no matter how simple or scalable you make your model, at the end of the day, if people don't come in the door, uh, you're done. So, yeah, and I didn't know that percentage going into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's better off to be that. I, well, you yeah. guys were what twenty four and twenty five when you started the business. It's almost better at that age to to begin and fail than to you know invest and do that in your mid thirties, late forties, etc. Yeah, yeah, and that it's. It's definitely the time, you know, when you don't you don't have families relying on you. You don't have uh, you don't have too many needs other than to to get out there and, and kind of follow what your passion is. So it's definitely it was definitely the right time of life to to take a risk. What I love is that the lead of this book kind of uh, sets the scene again with you on a boat. Tell me about Ed. 
Oh, Ed Perry. Um, so Ed was uh, my mentor, my uh, the, the captain, and I learned how to how to lobster. So Kettle Cove, right out right outside of uh, Cape Elizabeth. It's a be- beautiful cove. Richmond Island sits just beyond um, just beyond the cove, so it is a very scenic. We got rocky, sandy beach, islands, uh, r- rugged topography, so it's good lobstering. And Ed Ed was a is school teacher by nature, so or by profession, so um, he would do that in the off season. And in summer, he he taught me how to fish over a course of two years, and it, it was it was great. He was. Uh, um, anything but uh but gentle um and it was early mornings long days uh went out tough weather but but he really uh uh he took a care in making sure that i knew how learned how to lobster effectively and safely in learning how to lobster do you also decide whether or not you like a lobster roll with butter or mayonnaise has nothing to do with it (laughs) I feel like there's this 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 honorific moment though when you start a business it, it's it's about those producers which you certainly show in this book um, when you start a business based around lobster how do you talk to how do you deal with those lobstermen um, that's so that's I mean that's our game now right I mean we are uh, we are one of the largest seafood companies in Maine. We're buying lobster directly from communities of fishermen, um, and and it's their livelihood. So, so there's a balance between uh, there's a balance in the system that needs to be to be upheld, um, and that balance is that the price for to the boats to the fishermen it needs to be the right price. It can't be low. It can't be too high. And then the dealers in between fishermen and processors need to be able to make a spread and then uh the dealers need to be able to buy product at at a price and the processors need to be able to buy buy the product at a price that allows them to process it for profit otherwise um they can't build the market for for finished products so so it is a delicate conversation with fishermen because more often than not they just want more for their product but the reality is that there's a right price for lobster yeah, I mean, I, I do want to touch on that sustainability and, you know, inelastic or elastic market because, again, vacation land seems kind of uh, like all pleasure sometimes, but there really is a business model behind it, you know, and how it can survive because you do have those harsh winters. Yes, and, and so that a lot of, I mean, lobstering in, in Maine is over a billion-dollar business. I mean, there's... Um, it extends way beyond just the dollars that are going to the fishermen part, the fishermen's pockets. There's um, all of those restaurants and shacks that depend upon the product, the logistical network that's in place to service these fishermen, whether it's bait, fuel, transportation, then the processors and all of the jobs that go into processing, and then folks like ourselves that are that are main ambassadors selling that product out outside of the state and. Um, every point in that process delivers more value back to the state, and there is such a short window um, when when Maine is really at its you know full RPMs um, business wise. So so it is a very important um, part of the the business industry of the state. It's also very important to frequent some of those locations that serve that beautiful seafood. And you guys have a map in this book, kind of a road trip guide to be able to hit some of those spots what what are your go-to lobster rolls clam shacks pies my um my big go-to is five islands lobster company that's where i'm growing up the, the place that we visited most was five islands and we would rent a little cottage that was 
walking distance from the dock, and that's sort of I didn't I didn't get to learn the lobster when I was young, but I did get to learn uh, what it's like to just go down there at dawn and watch the boats go out and, and watch them come in in the afternoon, and that's that's sort of what made me fall in love with Maine and the lobster industry, and and that was uh, that memory was strong enough that it, it helped me convince Luke that I was the right <laughs> partner to start the business with uh, all these years later. Yeah, I, so f- talking more about that business model, it's it's truly it's awesome. I mean, those fishermen are the owners of the co-op. They're out there catching that that fresh daily catch, and then whether it's the fish or the lobster um, that they are making into these dishes that are served right on one of the most scenic. Uh, uh, I don't know viewpoints that you could have is is fantastic, and that that type of uh, level of service and um, quality is is consistent in, in a bunch of places up and down the coast. There's one in my hometown called the Lobster Shack, and they don't sacrifice quality. Um, the type of volume that these guys do is fantastic, and it's it's fun for me to watch and being on this side of the of the equation i mean I grew up going there but now that i understand the restaurant side of it uh it's it is it's a hub for tourists and it's a hub for locals and and it it's really neat to see those two demographics working working uh um work together because often it's like you either have a touristy spot or you've got a spot for locals and uh, they do such a nice job and so does a five islands co-op that you get a blend of both I, I don't think I actually got an answer to the most important question. Is it butter or mayonnaise? Well, I just hate mayonnaise, and I, I, I just I, I love lobster, and, and a little bit of butter is is really what does it for me. Is, is there like a, a sports rift here too about the lobster roll? There, there's not. I mean, the the standard way we do it at Luke's is a little bit of mayonnaise in the bun. And then a squirt of warm lemon butter on top, and of course the outsides of the bun are also buttered and criddled up. And I, I, I like a balance of of both. If I were going to choose, I think butter is the more important. And but I, I think most people recognize that the the main flaw with a lot of lobster rolls is an overabundance of mayonnaise. So uh, mayonnaise is great, but it it should be taken in small proportions when it comes to lobster. This isn't an allegory necessarily to the lobstering industry, but, you know, I want to touch again about that sustainability and overfishing. I know it's a worry of a lot of people, but what Maine does, I think, better than anybody is it notches those female tails. And I'm not saying that as like a surly sailor, you know, going out chasing tail, but (laughs) talk to me about what they do to ensure breeding in the lobster industry. Sure. So um, it's, it's, the breeding really has two aspects. The first is every female lobster that's ever been egg-bearing. So you catch a lobster, you flip it over, and if it's full of eggs, um, you look at the lobster and it's in front of you and it's got five flippers. That second flipper in from the right, uh, you see if there's a notch in it. And, and if there is not a notch, when you catch it with eggs, you put a notch in. And if you catch that lobster and it has a notch but no eggs, that means it had eggs at one point in time. So the point is that whenever that lobster has, uh, whenever that first time that lobster had eggs and was reproductive, it is going to be, continue to be reproductive to that, to that um, fishery. And then the second side of it is that Maine's got an oversized law. So um, logic being that when, when lobsters get to a certain size, they get infinitely more reproductive. 
So uh, it's another set of uh, sustainability that is different than uh, how it's managed in the Maritimes or south of Maritimes or south of Maine. So we're, we're actually going to take a quick break and, uh, break and come back and talk about the tastier things of Maine. Wild blueberries, potatoes. Don't forget about those shrimp and kelp. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. <coughs> hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ben and Luke of Luke's Lobster. So, real main food. Let's get to the actual food of this adventure. Um, you know, what, what's very important is that you <laughs> give an instructional of how to crack a lobster, but how do you cook and enjoy a lobster when it's not in a roll? There, there seem like there are a lot of iterations here in this book. Yeah, I think... So the the two most typical methods are boiling and steaming. And remember, Luke, I, I prefer to steam myself um, just because I think it you, you preserve more of the flavor in the lobster, less of it kind of leaches out into that boiling water. I'm in the same camp. Um... And I, I even uh, let's take that a step further. I, I usually take the claws and tails off, um, and then steam it, just because you can, you end up getting, uh, you end up achieving a, a quality temperature a little bit more consistently and quicker. Uh, the coldest part of the lobster is the core, so um, you tend to, you can tend to overcook the tail quite quickly and then the claws second if you, if you don't tend to take it down into parts. So when you guys do them for Luke's Lobster, you separate all that and do them at different temperatures, different times? And we do the claw, we actually grade the claws to different sizes. So the bigger claws we cook longer than the smaller claws um, and that helps obviously promote consistency and for us there's another layer of, of, of oh, above there's another layer in addition to quality which is his safety. Uh, we're, when we're using a high-pressure boiler and, and a uh, continuous steam cooker to, uh, to cook all of these knuckles and claws. Yeah, see, I don't have those contraptions at my home. Um, so I'm a little more rustic when I think about these things, kind of like you know, clam bake on a beach. And I know, I know you guys touch on that in the book, too. Um, I even saw this amazing... Tell me more about this pot of beans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really fun tradition that, that dates back to... Native Americans and up in Maine, and and uh, it wasn't a tradition that I knew too much about growing up, but heard about when we were traveling around researching the book in uh, in Central Maine, um, and I I learned how to do it at the Common Ground Fair, which is put on by the Maine uh, Organic Farmers and Gardeners or Growers Association. Um, basically, the the idea is you you put a pot of beans and salt pork 
originally original recipe calls for bear fat, but it's harder to get bear fat. <laughs> but if you can get it, you if put you the optional bear fat in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you basically put it in a, in a big pot uh, with some maple syrup and some water, and uh, you light a big fire pit and you bury the pot of beans for about a day uh, in this fire pit. And when you when you dig it up, uh, it's just incredibly rich and delicious if you do it right we had a couple of failed attempts bean whole beans did you forget where those beans were buried at all like (laughs) people won't be digging a hundred years from now and find that no the whole still in my backyard yeah (laughs) Uh, another kind of main tradition which which is rarely known i think in in new york or other parts of the country is anadama bread which i often bring back as many loaves as possible for me tell me about your affinity with that bread it's just, I mean, there's it, it, just something something special to it, you know. It's the same shape as a loaf of white bread or, or wheat bread generally, but it it just has this really nice richness and graininess to it. And I mean, the recipe that we have in here, um, it, it came from a bakery that uses corn from Songbird Farm, um, which is a really really great uh, heritage corn farm. Uh, it was in Starks at the time. They recently leased an, a new farm property elsewhere in Maine. I don't remember exactly where. Um, but uh, but Abenaki Flint corn, and this is one of these one of these products that folks up in Maine are are reaching back, finding these heritage strains of uh, be it wheat or oats or corn, and uh, and really building a whole. Uh, you know, a sort of like a food hub around these heritage grains and, and bringing back more nutritious, more delicious, uh, you know, products that then go into uh, a traditional bread like Anadama and, and just make it something even more special than, than what it has been. I think I was first introduced um, to to the bounty of Maine grains at the Kneading Conference, you know, which, which bread bakers flock to Maine every July, I think it's happening in the next couple of weeks, mm-hmm. uh, to discuss new ideas, methods, and especially grains. And what what Maine really has, you know, a lot of people think of Maine as this coastal thing, and there's so much more. I mean, you go up to Roostick County and some of the best potatoes I ever had, you guys really got to kind of encapsulate the state as a whole when it comes to food traditions. Mm-hmm. So how far north did you go? Uh, got up to Fort Kent, actually, to America's first mile, uh, where where Route 1 begins at the border of Canada. So uh, we did make it all the way to the northern tip, and we hung out on a, uh, on a buckwheat farm there, um, owned by a guy named Joe Bouchard. And coincidentally, I didn't, I didn't even realize it at the time, but his niece actually works with Luke's in our catering department back <laughs> in New York. So I came back and just realized that you know they had the same same last name and uh and that, that was a lot of fun to talk to her about it but uh we learned to make ploys up there which are a really uh, rarely seen item anywhere outside of that very northern tip of maine and and part of canada there it's basically a, a pancake that you don't ever flip so when those uh air holes form in the top of the in the top of the pancake you sort of just leave it leave it that way and let it sort of solidify and then it's nice and crispy on the bottom and soft and golden and buttery on the top it's like the so crowd of pancakes a nice crispy <laughs> bottom um and ben do you actually reveal the secret to your mom's blueberry pancakes in this book um i do yeah uh it was uh 
it, it took a long took a long time to get out of her. Um, but uh, you know, I got I got her consent. All the paperwork is is done. Uh, so she can't take it back now. It, yeah. ca- it caused some real problems in my family, where my my grandmother and aunt were were really bummed that they didn't get to contribute their secret recipes as a result as a direct result of it. I mean, of your family history, what is represented in this book? It's the, it's the lobster side of it for sure. Yeah, and what are the secret recipes that, that didn't make the cut in this one, or maybe were too costly, too much royalty would have had to be paid? Now, <laughs> uh, Ben, Ben, Ben has been part of Ben knows all of our secrets, or has been part in creating them, so they're in the book. Yeah, yeah. S'mores whoopie pie. I already know a whoopie pie is, is such a decadent thing. The s'mores edition is just is is seems almost ethereal <laughs> and, and dangerous at the same time too how did you find this recipe uh, that was actually i have to i have to give credit to um ali Cocott, who's on our marketing team um when i was uh planning to head up to the uh whoopie pie festival in dover foxcroft in maine i ended up being called away on an emergency for for Luke's and Ali traveled up there, uh, sort of on our behalf, uh, and went to uh, went to the Whoopie Pie Festival. You know, did the did the hard work of eating just vast vast amounts of Whoopie Pies. It's harder than people think, I believe. I mean, it, it gets filling pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At like, the same time, I am willing in your next emergency to attend the Whoopie Pie <laughs> Festival on your behalf. It was like her first first week on the job, too. It, 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 it was. I said, you know, she I mean, she just graduated college. She's a, <laughs> she's a young woman, and the first assignment that I gave her was to travel up to uh, the the almost geographic middle of Maine. <laughs> Born and raised in, in New York City, Ivy League educated, and Ben sends her up on her first her first mission her first mission is to go up and check out Whoopi yeah. Pies. But I'm hope, hopefully she was charmed. Uh, she she was. She, she had a great time. Uh, I think I think she may have met Miss Maine up there. Um, and uh, and she met these great bakers at uh, Chicago Bakery who actually are originally from Maine but now operate a business in Massachusetts. And uh, and they were in her mind the winners of the competition, and they contributed a couple of really great recipes to the book. Now clam chowder, I used to cook out in the Cape all the time, and I, I know I've, I have particularities. How did you vet out all other chowders to find the one that you printed here? That's a it's, it's a it's a funny story. So we when we opened in two thousand nine, we we always intended to have chowder um we don't have the capability of cooking chowder in our shacks you know, we don't have full kitchens there and so the intention was always find the best chowder maker that we can in maine and uh and find a way to to bring that to new york and uh where we found him ended up being on twitter <laughs> and that you know i i'm a little chagrined about that because I'm, I'm not huge on social media personally but he saw us on Twitter, and uh, and Phil is a he, he's a really amazing, friendly guy who had tons of restaurant experience, but had recently just founded a small deli in Green Maine with his family, um, and and he reached out over Twitter and said, you know, I hear you guys are looking for some looking for some chowder, uh, and I happen to have won the. Lewiston Chowder Competition the last two years, uh, 
and and big chatter, yeah. big big competition. Yeah. Oh, so Luke's dad Jeff hopped in the car and drove an hour north to Green and tried the stuff and called us and just said, "Yeah, this is this is the real deal." That's you know, it's so awesome that. What's the furthest location you have a uh, Luke's Lobster right now? It's technically Chicago. Yeah, but that you say so inherently, you know, true to Maine, not only in its makers but in, it, in its philosophies. Um, and this book celebrates, you know, th- those people and those ideas and those recipes in a way that you translate in Luke's Lobster um, almost seamlessly. Um, what of these recipes? aren't in Luke's Lobsters that you're actually hoping to be able to showcase at some point? That is a that's a great question. You know, we've we've sort of, we've built our whole model on having a basically a four item menu um, and that's sort of how our how our kitchens are set up but there are, there are a ton of things here that, that we would love to play around with. Maybe in the in a in a variation of the concept where we get to have a little more fun and, and get to build out a kitchen and get to do something like something like fried clams or like the lobster and kelp salad, you know, that's a pretty pretty simple dish. You know, I don't think we ever we don't ever plan to do like an also buco, which yeah. isn't here. <laughs> but but uh there there are definitely a lot of things in here that that we could play with and, and would enjoy too once we sort of uh, are comfortable enough to start start experimenting a little bit. And there's always been this faux pas of cheese with fish, yet alone lobster, but lobster grilled cheese? It's delicious. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, our, our attitude is certainly that um, lobster is best at its simplest. Um, but, you know, the it, it initially occurred to us to start doing it as a way to help encourage folks to come in the wintertime when... A lobster roll isn't as close to mind as it is in the summer, I guess. Um, and we uh, we just experimented with a ton of different cheeses. We had help from uh, a chef named Mackenzie Arrington, who's a, a great guy and really talented, who helped us uh, taste through a bunch of different cheeses. And, and we settled on Gruyere because it just, it really does not overwhelm the lobster whatsoever. It just adds a nice little nutty sweetness and creaminess to it that we feel like draws out the flavor uh, as opposed to covering it up and that's you know always what we're trying to do lastly and probably most importantly for me is beer um, Maine has had a very good brewing industry for a long time and we see Allagash um, we see Peak, we see Shipyard but there are some of those smaller brewers too that you highlight in this book uh, Oxbow being one um, there's Bended Horde and Biddeford there, there, there's so much happening in that state right now. Um, what are some of the younger producers that you're hoping to shed some light on and maybe work with in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think another one is Baxter. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great, it's a great quality product. It's innovative in the sense that they revitalize the canned beer, um, but they're also doing a great thing for the state of Maine. So they're based out of Lewiston, and that is a very repressed part of the state. So it's been phenomenal for. Uh, for a revitalization effort in in that part of the state. Yeah, and I guess I would say, I mean, partly because I was just there last week, but um, Oxbow is just uh, it's a really cool spot out in Newcastle. It's it's just opened in a in a tiny little farmhouse in the woods, 
you know, you could you could drive by it a hundred times and barely even know it's there if you're not looking for it. Uh, but they make these incredible um, Belgian-style beers mostly, and they're uh, they're committed to keeping a certain percentage of the beer that they produce in Maine because um, they want to sort of follow that true farmhouse aesthetic of like you know this is this is a local beer for our neighbors um and you know obviously that that's not that great for us because (laughs) we we can't get a lot of it but it is in new york um you know new york and and boston are privileged enough to have access to the, the remainder of what they're producing and um and while they're not exporting a ton of their beer, I like that they're exporting that value system and that people everywhere are starting to think that way. And I think that that Maine is leading the way in uh, in valuing your local food system and acknowledging that, yes, we, you know, we do need to export lobster. We do need to export blueberries and potatoes. And it's all part of the system, but, but everywhere should be sort of looking inward as well and figuring out how they can make better use of, of their local resources. Well, I'm glad you guys exported yourselves as, as ambassadors to Vacation Land, uh, Hoboken, Philly, D.C., Bethesda, Maine, and I'm sure plenty more to come around this country. But if that's not enough to convince you to go to Maine or stop by a Luke's Lobster, get real Maine food, uh, this cookbook will certainly have you, well, I'm going to try to say it, have you saying, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys, for coming on. Thank you. Also, a big shout-out to Jack and Maggie in the studios. Always uh, cookies for the theme and break music, uh, as well as Edwards and Sons for sponsoring. And next up, we have a little teaser clip of Danny Bowian of Mission Chinese Food talking the intersections of food and family on Eat Your Words, another great show found here on Heritage Radio. Also, if you're listening, we'd love for you to check in uh, on iTunes, rate and review us, and just show your support in whatever way possible. We are a 501c3, and we really uh, look towards the listeners for you know bringing you great new food content uh, week in, week out. Again, I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. You know, we weren't the most well-off family growing up, so we, we always ate at home. We didn't go out to restaurants that often. Acclaimed chef Danny Bowian of Mission Chinese has fond memories of food and family. And, and then my mom cooked, you know, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and yeah. I was just so fascinated. I'd always stand in the kitchen and cook with my mom, which is... Um, it was amazing. You know, it was like really cool. Uh, it was a good time that we always spend that time together. And I think that's what really inspired me to to want to cook. And, and it was cool because for that, you know, hour and a half that we ate or hour that we ate every night, you know, the whole family was there. And my dad was there and he worked. So I got to see him and talk to him. So it was cool. I thought, I always thought that like cooking and bringing people together, uh, being able to hang out with your friends or your family is, is really important. I think that was one of the major reasons that I wanted to cook. I didn't know that once I started cooking, I would never see my family or friends because I'd be cooking all the time, but mm-hmm. um, but you know it's uh, you, you see them when they come to the restaurant. You're fostering friendship and family for other people, right, I guess. Right, right, right. Good times. Yeah. This was an excerpt of episode 100 of Eat Your Words, hosted by Kathy Irway. All episodes available on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and iTunes. This piece was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. EscapeMaker.com. 
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.